the end of the day, snow is a complex problem and we need to have a good toolbox full of different tools. This is Alexis Alloway, and you are listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You are tuned into another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control, safety through innovation. Additional support is provided by 10 Barrel Brewing, Drink Beer Outside, and Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination of avalanches. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, I wanted to start this episode out with an introduction of the new executive director of the American Avalanche Association. Uh, welcome aboard, Janie Nolan. And uh, Janie stopped by the podcast and we had a little chat and she talks about some of the, the news from the A3 these days. So here we go with Janie Nolan. Welcome to the show, Janie. Hi, uh, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, you bet. I was hoping you could introduce yourself to our listener base. Tell tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, your connection to our community, and your new role. Yeah. Uh, well, as you mentioned, I'm Janie Nolan, and I'm the new executive director of A3. And I grew up in a really small town called Pinedale, Wyoming. And Like many of the people I'm sure listening to this podcast, I started skiing at a really young age and my brother and I, you know, competed in skiing and freestyle and racing all growing up. And my parents actually met while they were working at Alta. My dad was on patrol and my mom worked at the deep powder house. And throughout my childhood, my dad was really involved in the snow and avalanche community. So he did a lot of work for Alta snow safety program. And because of that, he kind of toted my brother and I around to local snow and avalanche workshops and ISSWs. And so that was really my first exposure to A3 and to the avalanche community. Um, And today I live in Denver, Colorado with my husband, and he is involved in the ski industry on the retail side as a photographer and marketer. Um, And I am thrilled to have made the jump from land conservation back to snow um, and to be working with A3 and to kind of pick up the torch um, of people that I've known my whole life and respected my whole life. And so, yeah, that's a little bit of my background. Right on. We'll, we'll give us a rundown on kind of the state of the A3, where are we at with the organization? What are some hopes and dreams that you have for it? And what are the, what's on the radar? Yeah. So A3 is actually in a great spot. Um, I, I said this, or I wrote this in my introduction column for the first issue of the Avalanche Review that's out in mailboxes uh, next week. So keep your eyes peeled. Um, but I am so impressed by the amount of volunteer work that has enabled A3 to get to where it is today. And it's just really impressive to see how far we've come just on people, you know, working in their spare time and um, kind of juggling multiple different uh, things at the same time. 
And right now, I think our biggest focus for A3 is carrying that momentum forward that Dan Caveney started um, when he came on in 2017. And, you know, a big piece of that is being strategic and being sustainable, especially financially sustainable moving forward. So we, this year, are working on a strategic plan. It's our first ever for A3, which is also crazy uh, that we've been around so long without a strategic plan. Um, But the plan has had tons of buy-in from the members. So we sent out a survey, we pulled everyone and we said, hey, what are we doing well? Where do we need to improve? Where should we be focusing our resources? And the plan is coming out of that. So it will be really, I think, member-driven, which is awesome. And it will shape our strategy for the next five years. Um, And I think put us in a good spot to really hone our resources where they should be and focus where they where we need to and kind of be the leader that A3 can and is, but I think even in a bigger way uh, in the Avalanche community. So that's kind of a big piece of our work uh, moving forward this year. Right on. What are some upcoming events and um, are there any membership drives going on right now? How can people get more involved? Yeah. So A3, one of our biggest focuses at this time of year is snow and avalanche workshops. So we are so proud to support regional workshops and they're happening all over uh, the Western U.S. and the Pacific Northwest. And there's even one in the East, which is exciting. Um, And these workshops are really great places for professionals and, you know, recreation, outdoor skiing or sledding enthusiasts, enthusiasts to come together and network, exchange ideas, you know, get more information about the season coming up, um, that kind of thing. And so those are happening. The first one is this weekend. Uh, It's the Four Corners Saw. It's hosted by the Silverton Avalanche School. They kick us off. And then pretty much after that, almost every week is a different snow and avalanche workshop through November. So I would recommend looking up um, what avalanche workshop is in your neighborhood and registering for that. And a lot of them are virtual this year. So say you live in California, but want to attend the Utah saw, you can do that because it's totally virtual. So it's kind of a cool opportunity while we are still in COVID to engage with a three. Yeah. Yet another silver lining sometimes that, that comes out of the, the COVID pandemic here. <laughs> yep, definitely. Um, and how about membership? Like what, what's going on with membership? Who should be looking at, at getting a membership of the, from the A3? Yeah. So I think um, this is such a big question. And for me, when I started at A3, I kind of, this is where I started was like, why should you be a member? And what is A3? And what have we been over the last, you know, almost 40 years? And I think over the years, A3 has meant a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But at the root of all of those things is this sense of community. Um, And so really since the late 1980s, A3 has been a place where a group of people who worked in a relatively unique environment in, you know, high stakes environments, so life or death decisions, could come together and find connection or support um, or, you know, growth and, and honestly common ground too, because A3 members are in all facets of the avalanche world. So they're in patrolling, they're in education, technology, mitigation, guiding, you know, research, search and rescue. And so A3 really makes sure that these people have a common place to gather and to find professional support and professional community. And we've done that since the beginning of time. And in the last five years, I think 
have really, well, beginning of time, 1986. <laughs> but in the last five years, we have kind of expanded even more. So to meet um, a bigger need and a demand from the industry. And so right now, A3 also oversees avalanche education standards in the U.S. We offer a lot of scholarships and research grants. There are some scholarships and research grants due on October 15th. If you haven't applied, uh, please do or submitted a research paper. Um, we also have a lot of publications. We published the Avalanche Review and Snowy Torrents and the SWAG, um, Snow Weather and Avalanche Guidelines. Um, and we also run avalanche.org, which is a huge resource that's visited by hundreds of thousands of people and utilized by dozens of avalanche centers every single year. And so all of those are now kind of building into A3 membership. So as a member, you get access to those benefits and you get to also be a part of a community that's really rapidly growing and that's at the forefront of the avalanche industry. And I think if you aren't a member, you know, there's a benefit to being, to supporting A3 through a donation or even joining A3 as a general member, which has a much lower threshold for, you know, you don't have to be a professional to become a general member of A3. And that support really helps A3 continue to help avalanche professionals in the U.S. And that benefits all of us, whether we're backcountry skiers or we drive in avalanche terrain um, or we recreate in avalanche terrain. We benefit from A3 members being the best that they can be. And so, yeah, I, that's why I would join A3 or consider making a donation to A3. Well, we do have one big announcement this year. I know um, in the past we have had a donor who has an anonymous donor who has given A3 a generous matching grant. So for every dollar raised, they matched it up to $5,000 during our fall fundraising drive. And this year, our donor has agreed to up that contribution to a $10,000 match. So between now and the end of the year, any money raised at A3 will be matched dollar for dollar. So your gift and your donation to A3 has double the impact that it normally does. So I would ask all of the A3 members um, who are renewing their membership to consider adding on an extra 25, 50, 100 bucks to your membership when you make your donation. And if you haven't, if you're not an A3 member, maybe uh, consider making a donation during this, um, the next month or two, because it'll have double the impact. Yeah. What a great opportunity um, to, to make your money count there. And that's just through January 1st. Yep. Through the end of, of 2021. <laughs> All right. I have to get my years right. <laughs> well, pony up everybody. Let's make it count. Are there general membership meetings that people can, can attend? Yeah. So we have one general member meeting a year and we are currently in the process of scheduling that. It will likely be in November or December. So in the next couple of months, and we have some exciting things up our sleeve for that meeting. We are currently working with Lynn Wolf, who I'm sure a lot of listeners know, um, to host a celebration of the Avalanche Review turning 40 years old during that member meeting. So it will be um, kind of a fun like webinar event around TAR and our general member meeting. So stay tuned. If you are a member, watch your email. We'll be sending out information on, on that meeting coming up. Awesome. Well, thanks for stopping by today, Janie, and, and welcome to the helm. No problem. Thanks for having me. And thanks for all you do to support A3, Caleb. It means a lot. And we are just lucky to have you as an A3 member and part of the A3 community. All right. Cheers. 
And next, we're going to jump right in with a great interview with Alexis Alloway uh, that I recorded last week. Um, Alexis is going to introduce herself, talk about um, some of her past and present roles within the Avalanche community, and talk about her great new book that came out last year, Avalanche Search and Rescue. It's a great handy field guide um, that has so much information packed into a, a nice package that could slip right into your pack or live on your bookshelf at home, and it's certainly a great reference for uh, early season refresher before you head out into the backcountry. Whether you're a professional or a recreationist, it doesn't matter. It's a it's an awesome resource. That I think everybody should pick up a copy of. Dropping in with Alexis Alloway. Good morning, Alexis. How are you? I'm fantastic. Good morning, Caleb. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, of course. Where are you coming to us from? I am coming to you from Bozeman, Montana. It is uh, October 4th and it's uh, sunny and in the 70s again today. So do that snow dance. <laughs> yeah. Is there any snow up high? Have you received any, any storms yet that have sprinkled the mountaintops? There was, but it has disappeared because it was in the 80s last week even. We're, we're having a pretty warm fall still at this point. Ah, well, maybe it'll just hold off at bay until it actually decides to start consistently snowing. Wouldn't that be nice? It would be. That's what we're hoping for. <laughs> Alexis, I was hoping you could introduce yourself to the listeners, talk about some of your background and really the path of of your career, where you find yourself today, and, and kind of looking back in the rearview mirror as well. Yeah. So I have had a long and winding road to where I am today. Um, it all started in upstate New York. That's where I'm from originally. And I've just always loved the outdoors from the time that I was a little kid. So I actually had a unique opportunity in late middle school and high school to get involved with a local Boy Scout troop. Uh, basically, my dad and brother were part of the troop. The scoutmaster was super progressive and thought that Boy Scouts should be co-ed like it was in Europe. And the scoutmaster told my dad that, hey, you can bring Alexis along as long as you come along to supervise her. And so he did. So, you know, throughout high school, I got to go camping. I got to go snowshoeing. I got to go winter camping through scouts. I actually started an outdoor club my senior year in high school. So we did whitewater rafting. I went downhill skiing for my first time. Um, and then I went to college at the SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry in Syracuse, New York, and going to a forestry school with a bunch of super outdoorsy people really piqued my interest in the outdoors. So in college, I got a job in outdoor retail. I worked at Eastern Mountain Sports in Syracuse, where I met coworkers who would take me rock climbing or take me ice climbing or take me skiing. And I also formed a core group of friends in college who loved to get after it, going up to the Adirondacks to climb high peaks. Uh, so during my sophomore and junior years of college, basically any weekend that I didn't have to work, we went up to the high peaks. So a lot of those were even winter ascent that I look back at now and was like, wow, how did I not lose some of my toes or fingers <laughs> or get killed in an avalanche. Like, it's amazing I survived those years. 
Um, a real pivotal moment in my life was at the end of my junior year of college, my really good friend, Jeff Dupuis, who I'd done tons of Adirondack adventures with, was killed in a mountaineering accident on Mount Rainier. So that instantly changed my life in a bunch of ways. Um, first, I can say that it shaped my risk tolerance, where seeing the absolute lifelong devastation that a tragic accident like that causes on family members and friends who are left behind uh, really made me rethink the risks that I take and how it affects those around me. And it also made me realize that life is short. It's unfair sometimes. And there's no guarantee that you're going to you know, make it to retirement to have that big adventure or do the things you really want to do. So Jeff's death, before that, I'd been thinking about going to grad school or going to law school after college. And pretty much within minutes of finding out that he died, I instantly decided I'm not going to grad school. I'm not going to law school. I want to go out west and I want to have adventures. Uh, so that's what I did. I finished up my senior year at ESF and then Basically, within a week of graduating, I moved to Boulder, Colorado, just because I happened to have a friend there who I knew. Um, and next thing you know, I had my sights set on Knowles, which came highly recommended to me from a bunch of different people. So I think I took my Knowles instructor course in 2003. I worked my first course for Knowles in 2004. And then I spent pretty much the rest of that decade with Knowles work being my primary job, doing some other like nature education stuff on the side. Um, so with Knowles, I look back at that now and I'm super grateful to have gotten my start in the outdoors in that organization. I quickly got into the Glacier Mountaineering program that soon led to me getting involved in our winter program, teaching backcountry ski courses, winter camping expeditions, snow and avalanche courses. And I will say that Knowles has produced some thought leaders in the snow and avalanche industry, um, people like Don Sheriff, Drew Hardesty, Lynn Wolf, Don and Sarah Carpenter, all those people came up through Knowles and it's not a coincidence. When you're working for Knowles, we take people into remote and austere environments where no one else goes. Um, we mountaineer in complex terrain with complete novices in Alaska, in India, in the coast range of British Columbia. And you really have to know your stuff when it comes to keeping people safe. So one thing Knowles does really well is train and mentor staff. And I realized I got super lucky that I happened to be coming up at Knowles uh, when some of those old timers were still there or still being contracted to work courses for the school. So I took my first pro level one with Lynn Wolf as an instructor. And actually she instructed my pro two. Knowles was doing pro courses before they were a thing. Um, Don and Sarah Carpenter taught a 10 day wilderness instructor course that I had to take. So I got to spend time with them. Uh, John Fitzgerald taught one of the courses I took. So I didn't quite realize it at the time, but I think that being around these super smart, super passionate, and very professional people absolutely shaped the way I viewed snow and avalanches. And as someone who was spending considerable amount of time bringing novices into hazardous terrain, um, I couldn't live myself if I had 
I could not live with myself if I had a student involved in an accident where I was at fault and I set really high standards for myself of, wow, this is really serious. I have to know what I'm doing and you can never know it all. And I really need to keep learning and finding ways um, to keep gaining experience and seeing different perspectives and learning as much as I can. So I did Knowles uh, pretty much as my full-time gig when I was in my 20s, and then just got tired of being gone all the time, especially on those 30-day expeditions. So in 2010, I'd been living in Colorado. I took a job with Knowles Pacific Northwest, working in town as a program supervisor outside of Seattle. Their base was up in Conway, Washington. I supervised the program for about a year and a half, and it was really great experience of learning about risk from an institutional perspective of how are we staffing courses? Where are we sending courses and when? And is that an appropriate place for the current conditions in the mountains? And wow, we had these incidents. I'm carrying the evac phone and have to respond <laughs> to the call with the broken leg in the North Cascades. Um, and then, wow, the course comes back and they had this near miss and now I have to debrief them and then figure out what next steps are and document things institutionally. So program supervising was great experience. Uh, I would say by 2011, I'd done the program supervision. It was great, but it was also a lot of hours for low pay. And I just decided I was ready for something else. So at that point, I actually got my first quote unquote real job. Um, I was hired by Triangle Associates, which is a small environmental consulting firm in Seattle. They took me onto their education team. And essentially, I got a part-time job working as a professional educator, being a guest speaker in schools, teaching kids about conservation issues like climate change, energy conservation, waste reduction and recycling, etc. Um, and the really cool thing about Triangle was I love the work. I learned a ton and it was part-time and flexible. And so it still allowed me to stay involved with Knowles. I could work a mountaineering course or work a couple of short winter courses every year. And then it also just gave me time to do other things. So I started working a bit for NWAC, the Northwest Avalanche Center, with um, their awareness courses and youth education, which was really, really fun. And I also got involved with Mountain Rescue. I joined Everett Mountain Rescue in Snohomish County, Washington in 2012 um, and took on some good leadership roles there. So you know, from 2011 to about 2019, I did consulting and avalanche work in the winters. And then basically 2019, um, I just hit Terminal City with Seattle, was ready for a change. And so I moved to Bozeman, Montana. And uh, basically where I am today is COVID was devastating on my household. My husband works in international travel and his business literally fell off a cliff overnight. <laughs> It seriously makes me ill thinking about it still of going from like, wow, I have seven figure sales to zero. <laughs> and so I took a full time job. I am working in an education and outreach position for a local garbage hauling company doing their recycling education. And then I'm still doing a little bit of guiding work, education work and work with the Avalanche Center on the side. Right on. Well, that, that sounds like a full plate these days. It is. I, I get a 
a lot of uh, W-2s or W-4s or whatever they are. Taxes are complicated. I'll say that. Lots of tax forms. All right. <laughs> Lots of tax forms. Well, it seems like a, a common theme throughout your career has been education and outreach. Um, and y- you didn't even mention the fact that you recently wrote a book, right? And so <laughs> as if you weren't busy enough. Um, and so uh, Avalanche Search and Rescue, a field guide, um, came out last year, I believe, right? Yeah, we published it in January. It's still so new to me to be an author. And I do forget that, that, oh, yeah, that's right. And I did squeeze in writing a book in between all those other things. <laughs> uh-huh. And so what was the what was the impetus for writing this book and maybe talk a little bit about um, you know, what went into it, who's it for, and, and how should it be used? Yeah, I think the impetus was I used to spend most of the year thinking about snow and avalanches. And when that was the case, it was pretty easy to keep everything straight. Uh, once I transitioned to like, okay, I'm doing this consulting work and my brain is now occupied with a lot of other different things. And I'm going for longer stretches uh, without thinking about snow and avalanches. I personally started finding it difficult to refresh myself in an efficient way at the start of every season. So basically, there are all these amazing resources out there on you know, avalanche safety, avalanche rescue, but they live in a million different places. And I just found that when there was a specific fact I was looking for, it would sometimes take me an hour of, okay, I'm digging through my binder. I can't find it. Was that in staying alive in avalanche terrain? Nope, wasn't there. Let me go online. Oh, there's six different papers on probing. Like, I just want this one number. And it's wasting a lot of my time where I could be out skiing or doing something more fun than like digging through all these disorganized resources that are in a million different places to find what I need. Um, So I also saw that just working with volunteer SAR. My peers were in an even worse situation of they weren't avalanche professionals. They all have real jobs that are full-time. They've never worked in the industry and they definitely had trouble trying to remember all the nitty-gritty technical details, especially with SAR, where we go above and beyond the skills of companion rescue, and we need to know rigging skills, and we need to know advanced wilderness first aid skills, and we need to be able to navigate really well, and we need to have really dialed risk management systems. So basically, I think it was like 2016 or 2017, I took on a leadership role in preparing my mountain rescue team for our upcoming snow and avalanche reaccreditation through the Mountain Rescue Association, where every couple of years you actually get an exam as a team where you have to prove or demonstrate through scenario that you know, we're able to safely and competently execute an avalanche rescue. Um, avalanche rescue was a weakness of my team for sure. And as I was leading these trainings, I could just see that, wow, people are overwhelmed and we need some cheat sheets or we need some resources at the ready to help my teammates out. So in that season, my husband helped me a lot. We created a pretty (laughs) 
um, pretty crude field manual for rescuers. We used PowerPoint as the design software. We did a lot of uh, screenshots, cutting and pasting. There was a lot of texts, but basically we made this 30 page manual for rescuers of here's everything you need to know, like checklists, diagrams, et cetera. And as soon as we published it, meaning, you know, printing it, cutting it, laminating <laughs> the pages and handing the little booklets out, it was an instant hit where everyone wanted one. I started having people from other teams reaching out to me saying, hey, can we have a copy? And at that point, I was like, no, I'll probably get in trouble. Like, these aren't my resources. I just cut and pasted a bunch of stuff. But it really made me realize, like, oh yeah, this is a super important and helpful resource, um, not only for SAR teams, but myself as an educator, I found myself working in the field and being like, man, I wish I had that little booklet right now so that I could show my student who's struggling to visualize something, a little diagram that instantly helps out. Yeah, it's, um, it's quite amazing how many resources are in such a, a small footprint of a field book in here. I mean, you've got sections on planning and leadership of an organized rescue, risk management from a organizational standpoint, uh, how to perform a, a beacon search in, in uh, various different scenarios, uh, shoveling techniques, info on on uh, emergency medicine, rigging and evacuation. I mean, there's a ton in here. It's a, it's almost like everything that would be in, um, you know, a, a field book that you might get from an avalanche uh, course, plus like a WMI woofer field book. Plus, I mean, it's it's quite amazing how much information is is jammed into here. It is, and to me, that's just illustrative of how complex avalanche rescues are. Mm. And I don't think people realize that when they do companion rescue of, you know, the buck doesn't stop there. Once you have shoveled someone out, let's say, uh, that's where like the epic may be just beginning because now you have someone who may have serious traumatic injuries. You may be in a pretty remote environment. The weather may be terrible and something that's like, oh, normally it's just an hour to get back to the car on skis may now be a 13 hour epic <laughs> that involves technical rigging systems uh, and a high level of care to keep that subject alive <laughs> to get them out of the backcountry. So it seems like this field guide is is uh, super useful to search and rescue personnel. How about other users? How about recreational backcountry users in the winter environment? Yeah, it's funny. When I first started writing the book, it was for organized SAR or ski patrol or fire sheriffs, whoever's responding to organized SAR. And then I quickly realized once it started coming together that wow, this resource actually is for everyone. If you're a guide, here's a refresher on those medical skills that maybe you haven't looked at since your last woofer research. If you are a recreationist, here's a quick refresher on terrain. It's been six years since you've taken your last AVI course. Like, check this book out. Do you remember what your spacing should be when you're pinpointing probing? Um, I can tell you that I probably don't. So especially now at the beginning of the season, it's super helpful for anyone who's going into the backcountry to take some time and refresh those skills, especially with companion rescue. The details 
do matter. <laughs> it is an airway emergency. You do have a limited amount of time um, to have you know, some likelihood that your missing person could survive and being super dialed and doing things accurately really could make the difference between life and death in an actual emergency. So we need to stay on top of our game and our brains all have limited capacities. We need to make the effort to refresh ourselves. Yeah, I found it super useful just flipping through this. I, I just received a copy a few weeks ago, but um, it definitely helped me clear some of the cobwebs out of my brain in terms of avalanche search and rescue. I've got a listener question here. Alexis, what do you think is the best way to practice some of these avalanche search and rescue skills in the early season? That is a great question, and I can relate to that. Um, last year in Bozeman, we didn't really have <laughs> snow on the ground for a couple of months. Everett Mountain Rescue, we lived in an environment. Our hangar was in a place where we don't get snow on the ground. So I will say the ideal way to practice these skills is in snow. <laughs> so if you can, like in Everett, we would drive two hours <laughs> to go have our star training up at Stevens Pass where there was snow. That's not always an option. Um, and something is better than nothing. So I have done trainings at night, for example, where we did some reco trainings in the dark at the hangar where, okay, we'd put the detectors in a shoebox or something and stick it under leaves. <laughs> and, you know, between cover of darkness, using vegetation, we're able to at least get something out of that training. Um, some, same thing with transceiver work of you can do it without snow. It's not ideal, but maybe it's better than nothing. Uh, and then the other reminder I would give people is that SAR, an avalanche rescue, is about so much more than transceiver work and shoveling and probing, the things you really do need snow for. So use the early season or use the lack of snow to make sure your other skills are dialed. Uh, radio communications, a very common cause of mishap or frustration during SAR rescues. Have a communications training. Make sure people are dialed. And do tabletop exercises. I've definitely done scenarios indoors where you kind of even do it choose your own adventure style or hopefully you have some kind of risk management system. Well, we can go over that in classroom trainings. We can actually practice using it by applying it to old case studies and we can have valuable trainings in a classroom setting. Um, and then when we get the snow or when we're able to get there, we can kind of put it all together into more complex and, you know, less contrived trainings in an actual setting. So one of the main differences between uh, companion rescue and an organized outside association rescue, um, well, one thing is the timeline, right? Yep. That's, that's a major difference. And the other thing is the number of personnel. So Maybe you could talk a little bit about how search and rescue organizations utilize a, a command structure in the incident command system and, and what does that look like and how do you train for that preseason um, to get ready for an avalanche, a full-blown uh, avalanche search and rescue scenario? Pretty much all teams I've ever worked with seem to be using the incident command structure. And 
I mean, I saw on my team that we were, uh, that was actually one of the first required trainings that I had to do as a brand new SAR volunteer is just, hey, you're part of this organization. Cool. You have to complete these trainings that just help explain what the ICS is and how it works, because that is the system that we're going to operate within. So every team, I'm sure, has their own ways of training people to use the system. And then for a winter environment, an organized rescue, it can get complicated. Um, some can be complex and actually not that different than a companion rescue if it's really straightforward. And then when I lived in Washington, I saw that organized rescues could get super complicated or even a winter search. Like if someone goes missing in the Mount Baker backcountry in February, um, wow, that's a lot of potential terrain that we may need to be searching. It's going to require a lot of people or resources to be sent into the field, um, possibly going through a lot of challenging avalanche terrain potentially. And we are almost certainly going to have multiple teams involved. So it's really important that all those teams are operating within the same system. So I kind of see that, okay, we learn individually how the system works, but then we come together. And I will say that interagency or interunit trainings, like the MRA reaccreditation process, like we all come together, we operate with and work with different teams are really helpful for having things go smoothly when there is a big incident with a lot of different organized rescue parties involved. Yeah, there's certainly a lot to think about there, I'm sure. And and it sounds like communication is kind of a common theme to make things run smoother. And, and you can't just have the intention of having good communication. It, it does take practice, I'm sure. Talk about some of the, the effective ways that teams that you've been on have utilized a debrief to learn from either a training scenario or an actual rescue and and kind of um, you know become a better oiled machine through that process. Debriefing is absolutely essential for there to be any kind of learning in anything experiential that we do. If we don't pause to reflect afterwards, we're not actually going to learn and grow from that experience. Uh, I would say my team actually did a really good job of trying to have debriefs after a mission. So oftentimes we you know, get back to the trailhead and your teams are probably going to come back at different times. Um, and so making sure you at least have the small team debrief. And if we get multiple teams and everyone's there at once, we can have the big debrief. Um, one thing we would do is at our monthly meetings, we would go over all the different missions from the past month and take the time as a group in a warm, comfortable setting to further debrief learning points. And then we would also use the AAR after action report where, okay, if I was on a mission, I was a team leader for it. I'm going to take the initiative to write up basically the key points from the debrief and then email it out to my entire team so that other people can learn from it. I will say that in a SAR context, um, having debriefs can be really difficult, especially if you know we're stumbling back to the trailhead at 2 a.m. We still have a two-hour drive to get back home. People are cold. They're exhausted. They're hungry. Um, and so... 
you know, knowing the appropriate time to debrief is really important. And I've also learned that, okay, if I'm coming back to the trailhead now, my team is hiking out, we're feeling pretty good and energetic. You can have informal debriefs along the way. So you don't have the need to stand there at the car and take another 20 minutes of people's time. So I've definitely been on the hike out where I'll say to my team, you know, Hey guys, I think we had a great day today. Like what worked well or wow, what do you guys think about the way we manage that exposed rock section? Like let's talk about that while we're hiking if we're in a good headspace and environment to do that. Mm, seems like there's some parallels there that would work well just in a recreational context too of going out for a a day in the winter backcountry environment and in avalanche. Absolutely. And I've done that before where you don't have to wait until the end of the day to debrief. I can think of a very specific time where um, I was basically out with a mountain rescue group, you know, maybe four of us. Um, We had a friend out front who was setting a track and kind of let her set her track, was trying to just let her lead without any coaching. She picked a pretty (laughs) not optimal track. And, you know, when we were done and we got to the top, good resting spot, it's sunny, we're all having a snack. We debriefed it then in a, you know, comfortable environment. And rather than wait till the end of the day, because a million other things are going to happen before then, it was great and really well received. And then we didn't have to talk about it six hours after the fact when we'd forgotten the salient points. So I do really encourage people to look for opportunities to debrief throughout the day. It's going to be sometimes more effective when the experience or the information is fresh, as long as people are in the right mindset to be having a productive debrief. Right. And then you can also error correct on the fly, right? Exactly. Have a a better outcome for the day, perhaps. Alexis, I was wondering, you know, you've been a career educator and what are some of your thoughts on the current state of avalanche education in the United States? Like what what are some things that you think we could be doing better? And, And I guess the caveat to this is that there, there's a ton of work that's been going on into avalanche education curriculum, um, both from the A3 side of things and then from different providers. Um, but uh, just your thoughts. What do you think? Yeah. So first, I want to say I took my first rec level training in 2003, I think it was. And I left that training pretty much not knowing anything. I basically knew like, okay, cool. I'm dialed on my rescue skills. I feel good about that. Um, But I remember basically feeling like, wow, the backcountry is super dangerous. (laughs) And essentially I want to avoid steep terrain if it's been really windy or if it snowed a lot. And I felt really incompetent (laughs) and not confident about going into the backcountry because I was just so overwhelmed. So the good news is since I took that first rec level one in like 2003, so much has changed in the industry and we have so many more tools nowadays than we did then. Things like avalanche problems, they weren't teaching it way. I wasn't thinking about it that way back then. Um, And that was really revolutionary to me. Strategic mindset, super helpful tool that I regularly use that wasn't around back then. Even the conceptual model of avalanche hazard, they weren't using that in 2003. 
Uh, I do think the pro-rec split was a great success and definitely the way that we should be moving. And I will also say that just avalanche forecasting has changed so much from when I first started, and it's gotten a heck of a lot better, um, both in terms of just the sheer amount of data that our forecasters have, the number of forecast centers, the number of forecast zones, the number of forecasters, all this user data we're getting, and then the way the forecast centers are presenting that information. Um, it's amazing. We have these great resources. We've come a long way. But at the same time, um, I still see it as, wow, we still have a long ways to go. Despite having all these amazing tools and information, we continue to see the same preventable accidents occurring. And my own anecdotal experience is what I see from the recreational public reading accident reports, going out with ordinary people in the backcountry who have some level of avalanche education is we continue to see that, hey, the forecasters actually spell it out pretty darn clearly nowadays. They tell you exactly what the problem is, where you can expect to find it, observations you can make to assess that problem. Um, they nowadays are even telling you kind of where not to go, and yet people continually ignore the forecast and then get themselves into trouble. I definitely see that even people who've had some recreational training lack basic skills. Um, they fail to identify avalanche terrain. Sure, they can identify start zones, but they're not able to identify safe zones or even tell you where avalanches can not only start, but also run and stop. Um, it seems like people have a hard time using an avalanche forecast and actually applying that to terrain selection. And we also see people managing groups inappropriately, getting multiple people caught. And uh, I also think there's just a complete misunderstanding of persistent weak layers and deep slabs and just how unpredictable and dangerous they are. So really what I'm seeing is like we have these fantastic tools. <laughs> we put that information out there, um, but I'm also seeing that a lot of recreational users are not actually using those tools. So, okay, I go out with my mountain rescue crew and they all check the forecast in the morning, but they're not using written trip plans or they don't come to the trailhead with targeted observations they want to make or they don't use debriefs at the end of the day. So where I wanna see the industry go or like things I've learned along the way, I think that the avalanche industry needs some outside help from the professional education industry. When you look at the people who are developing curriculum, I see people who have a lot of risk management experience. They definitely understand snow and avalanches. They understand how to manage groups. Um, but I would say they're not professionally trained educators who necessarily understand how people learn and even just human psychology and development. So in the avalanche industry, we seem to have a lot of really, really strong opinions about this is the way to teach it. This curriculum is the best. And yet, I don't see that those opinions are being formed by data. So in professional 
education, you use data <laughs> to figure out what's working and what's not working. And so when I worked as a consultant in a classroom education situation, some of the best feedback I ever got and data was essentially I would go into a classroom and have to teach, you know, a 50 minute climate change lesson. And I would teach five of those classes in a row for all the different classes throughout the day. And we would do pre and post testing because we had to be able to show our clients what students were actually learning. So I came into this job with 10 years of experiential education you know, practice. I thought I was a good educator. There would be days where I'm like, nailed it. I just taught that so well. And then as soon as the class was over, I would read the post tests and I would see they all got question four wrong. How could that be? I totally thought I had nailed it, but then I got direct feedback on my teaching. And so then I would be able to adjust as I went into the next class period and say, all right, I thought it worked, but it didn't. So now I need to try something different. And basically by using pre and post testing, we get feedback on what students are actually learning and we can use that to inform our curriculum because we may be surprised that maybe there are some things they're actually learning quite well, but then there are other things we think they're getting and they're not. And then we can move forward using more of an evidence-based approach instead of anecdotes and opinions. So it sounds like you're, you're advocating for a little bit more assessment within a recreational course context. We have great assessments um, that that are happening in the professional level courses in the United States right now, and I think that there is it, there is a bit more going on behind the scenes right now to hopefully implement this. Um, but it sounds like uh, data driven uh, approach to assessing how we're doing through assessments of our students' learning retention. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think the other unfortunate thing in the recreational track is, I mean, I think it's kind of up to the course provider, um, but I think plenty of people take a recreational avalanche course and they as students don't get any feedback. Mm. They're not getting a written evaluation. They're not having to take a test. They're not getting an actual certification. It's more of like, hey, you get the certificate because you took the course. And Unfortunately, that means that, okay, I can take my rec level one, you know, check the box, tell all my friends that I have the quote unquote cert, because that's what I hear a lot of people say. Uh, and I may have no idea at the end of that, of like, what do I actually know and what do I not know? And I think that's unfortunate because we are sending people into the wicked learning environment and I think we want to send them out there with at least some assessment and feedback to help them develop their self-awareness about where they are on the learning journey. So it may not be popular because obviously it would add, you know, just work and time. And I know we feel strapped for time teaching shorter courses. Um, but essentially, if our students aren't getting that feedback from us, they don't know what they don't know, and that's not going to set them up for success. You know, I, I think a lot of this is in, in the way that you're describing this, you're kind of putting a lot of onus on the educators, right? And like, um, I would say that 
that a lot of the onus goes on the individual to seek totally. out. Seek it's out, everyone. Seek out. <laughs> and I will say, if you're an individual, you can ask your instructors for feedback. There may be no written evaluation, but that doesn't mean you can't say, hey, you've been around me for the last three days. What do you think I'm doing well at? And what do you think I really need to focus on? Uh, I will say like, I've, you know, learned a ton. I continue to learn, but the majority of my learning really has been self-directed. Of course, I've learned when I've taken formal trainings and I've taken a lot, um, but I would say I've learned just as much, if not more, through my own follow-up and professional development and taking the initiative to try different things, to read things, to listen to podcasts, and to go personal skiing. Um, I think one problem in avalanche education is some of these educators have super strong opinions and they get kind of tunnel visioned and lost in their own little bubble. It's not uncommon for someone to have an entire career working in snow in the same place, in the same snowpack. And I've been super fortunate of, I basically learned how to ski in the San Juans of Southwest Colorado. And then I moved to Seattle and dealt with a maritime snowpack for many, many years. I've spent a ton of time in the Tetons and more of an intermountain snowpack. And I also have worked for different organizations. So, okay, I got the Knowles perspective. Awesome. I've gotten a lot of uh, AAI training. Awesome. Whoa. Then I went and worked for a forecast center and I actually started seeing things a little bit differently and learning where some of my blind spots were or, wow, you know, everything was AAI where I live. Now I'm exposed to Aerie and I am seeing some tools they have that I've never seen before that are actually quite useful and helpful. So for everyone, whether you're a pro or whether you're a recreationist, I think it's important to recognize your own experience, but also lack of experience and take the initiative if you can to get outside of your comfort zone, send yourself to new places and um, just start to learn as much as you possibly can, recognizing that snow is complicated. It's super different. It's always changing. And at the end of the day, there aren't black and white, like right or wrong. Um, I see it as the end of the day, snow is a complex problem and we need to have a good toolbox full of different tools. Some of them I may never use or may rarely use, but at the end of the day, the more tools that I have that I've learned in different places, the more effectively I'm able to assess a given situation and say, hey, you know what? Here now today, I'm actually going to pull out this tool because I think it's the right tool for this specific job. And I'm probably not going to be pulling out the same tool every single time, especially if I've been around and seen some different things and just seen that snow and avalanches are not that black and white. Mm. I love that. And, and uh, you know, I, I feel like we've kind of created a culture, at least in the past, I feel like we're moving beyond this a bit, that has um, th- that has encouraged just kind of checking these boxes of taking these courses and checking these boxes. And there's so much more to it than that. It's a, it's a lifelong learning uh, process in the snow to come to understand um, the many facets of snow and avalanches. 
I think one thing that you're getting at is need for assessment and certification. And so much like you'd get a CPR card after taking a American Heart Association CPR class, um, I feel like that's one thing that we could be doing a little bit better in the industry, at least with a at least with the rescue courses that are happening in recreational um, avalanche education these days. And so, you know, you wouldn't go scuba diving with somebody who mm-hmm. isn't certified. And I'm not a scuba diver, but I know that there is a certification process there. And so, much like that, you know, if you meet somebody at a bar and you want to go skiing with them the next day, maybe say like, hey, Alexis, like, great to meet you. Sounds like we'd make good ski partners. Like, when was your last rescue course? Let's see your card. Any thoughts Absol- on that? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think, unfortunately, snow and avalanche skills are perishable, just like first aid skills, just like scuba skills. Mm -hmm. And like those two other subject matters, uh, the consequences matter. If you're not competent and you're not up to date, that could have life or death consequences. And I did actually see when I worked in mountain rescue that a lot of my friends in search and rescue, they had certifications, but I would call them expired certifications Mm -hmm. where it's like, yeah, you took your level one and it was seven years ago and you go in the backcountry about three times a year. Like you're just not getting enough hands-on practice or even brain-on practice um, to really be competent. Avalanche skills, rescue skills, they really are use it or lose it. And even though I'll admit every time I have to resert my woofer, I grumble. My woofer resert is coming up in three weeks. I can't say I'm like gung-ho thrilled about it, but I will say that every time I take that resert, at the end of it, I'm always like, you know what? I needed to do this. <laughs> it was the right thing to do. I I was getting a little rusty and I absolutely needed to be forced to do this. So I, I hope we get there someday with the avalanche industry because it's in everyone's best interest to, to be realistic about the limits of our skills. Right. It's almost as if the boxes that we check that we then hang our hat on become unchecked over time. And just things change all the time Mm -hmm. (laughs) and people almost seem resistant to that or they don't get it or they'll get like, but this is what I learned. And you're like, awesome. Well, there are really smart people that are constantly researching best practices. And this is what they're saying is the new best practice. So yeah, things continue to evolve. We need to stay on top of that. You need to recertify. Alexis, any reflections on being a female in a male-dominated work environment for for most of your career, things that have worked well for you, and and thoughts on how we can um, have more inclusivity and diversity within the snow and avalanche community? Yeah, I mean, I have to say I have worked in male-dominated environments most of my life. You know, I was involved with Boy Scouts, one of the only females. Um, I went to a forestry school. All my professors were men. And then being at Knowles, working in technical programs like mountaineering and snow and avalanche, early on in my career especially, I worked multiple all-male courses where I was the only female. No female co-instructors, no female students. Um, And I feel pretty lucky that I can say, you know, being 
a female in a male-dominated environment has actually been pretty easy for me. I haven't ever felt sexually harassed. I don't feel like I've really been discriminated against or held back from doing what I want to do. Um, and when I reflect on that, like part of it is, I would say, luck and personality of my mom is kind of a force to be reckoned with. She's an emergency medicine physician assistant. She is a competent and confident woman. And I grew up around that of if my mom has a problem, she's going to speak up about it and be direct. And so I think my personality traits of um, I value excellence. So I'm a pretty competent person in everything that I do. I worked really hard to develop my competence. And that matters. People notice that when you're competent, they're more likely to follow you. Um, confidence, you know, and I think that goes along with competence of, okay, I know what I'm doing. And I know that I know what I'm doing. And I'm just going to own that. I think that women can definitely struggle with confidence sometimes. Um, and I naturally have some assertiveness to my personality and I'm comfortable speaking up. And I think part of that, again, just comes from my mom role modeling that. And my parents taught me to not care what other people think. <laughs> and I've realized like, wow, that's actually different. Like I talked to my husband and his family was definitely like, oh, what are the neighbors going to think? Whereas my mom was like, hey, it doesn't matter what you know, those people think. Um, I think women are frequently taught from the time we're young to be nice and to be liked and sometimes to be quiet. Um, people don't want to be called a bitch or an assertive woman. And to me, it's like, well, you don't want to be too assertive. Nobody should be. Nobody likes that. But at the same time, assertiveness is an important leadership skill that we all need to learn. And it is a, a balance, um, but it's an essential skill for anyone to be able to speak up and speak their mind in a kind but direct manner. So I think I've been lucky of, okay, I have some of these personality traits. Um, and I also recognize that I have worked for fantastic organizations that support women. So Knowles, they recognized years ago that, wow, we have way too many males. We don't have any racial diversity in our organization. And they've done a tremendous job uh, with diversity, equity, inclusion, both for women as well as the LG. BTQ plus community, um, people of color of just saying that, hey, this is a weakness. We want this to change. And here's how we're going to do that. So I have definitely benefited from, you know, being part of organizations that clearly state that they value women. And then those organizations find ways to get women into the organization and then mentor them and bring that up. So that can look like, um, first of all, just saying we want more women. Why did I join Boy Scouts? Because a male scoutmaster said, you should join us. I would have never gone to him and asked to join that troop. Why did I join Mountain Rescue? Well, I was at a snow and avalanche workshop in Seattle and a SAR chair from Everett Mountain Rescue gave a talk. And at the end of his talk, he said, hey, we need women. Like if you're a skier or a climber in this audience, we could really use you. Come join our team. And if he had not said that, I don't think it would have occurred to me after his presentation that like, wait, 
I have those skills. I could join SAR. Um, so yeah, it's been helpful for me when organizations actively recruit women. And it's been really helpful when the men or the dominant power people in those organizations have supported me along the way. And so what that has looked like is, uh, you know, my course leader on the first North Cascades mountaineering course, I worked for Knowles, where I was a brand new patrol leader or mid-level instructor. I'd never worked a technical course before. I was definitely struggling with like, yikes, I'm really intimidated. <laughs> and that course leader on day three sat me down and he said, Alexis, what do we need to do to get you course leading? And I was like, dude, are you crazy? Like, <laughs> I'm a brand new PL. I don't even know if I can handle that. But just the fact that he got me starting to think about what am I good at? What have I mastered? And what skills do I need to work on? And then he was there to create opportunities to um, create those training opportunities for me. So he's like, cool, technical move tomorrow. You're going to scout it. You're going to figure it out. You're going to manage it. Like, I'm going to put you in the hot seat. I'm super confident, but I'm going to step back. I'm going to allow you to lead. Uh, but he also just created a really supportive and growth-oriented environment where I felt like I could make a mistake. <laughs> and then we just sit down and have hot chocolate at the end of the day and talk about it. And then I go into the next day feeling like I learned something and just having improved confidence. So I definitely have been pushed by men along the way to assume leadership positions. Um, sometimes my husband will go out climbing with me and he'll be like, you're leading everything today. Like you're going to guide me up all five pitches. And I would never say to him, I'm going to guide you today. But for him to push me and say like, I know you can do this. It's good development. And I'm going to step back and put you in the hot seat and yet be here to support you on doing something that's challenging. Um, so yeah, I think just role modeling to other people that you value women, you value their opinions and perspectives. So, you know, ask your female tail guide for her opinion on something when a student asks a question. It shows that she's competent and valuable. Step back and allow them to lead. And then I think it is important, at least for me, to hear kudos and hear when I do a good job and even to hear appreciation. I have definitely worked with people over the years who are pretty non-communicative where you're like, I have no idea if I'm doing a good job or a terrible job. And that's not helpful. Uh, and I think we all benefit from hearing some affirmations and positivity. And I'd like to see more of a culture of that in the snow and avalanche world. Love it. Thanks for those thoughts. Alexis, uh, you have a story of a, a close call or near miss, maybe good decision gone bad or bad decision gone good, <laughs> anything like that from the, the snow and avalanche world? I, I sure do. And, you know, I know most people you interview answer this with their near misses. I've definitely have had mine and made my boneheaded decisions, um, but I actually want to talk about a success story because people frequently don't talk about our successes. And so when I think back on my Knowles career, I worked a lot of backcountry ski courses and I have one day on a backcountry ski course that really stands out to me because it illustrated that we can be super effective as educators and we can teach 
students who you know, don't know much to make really good decisions. So I was working this backcountry ski course where we're somewhere in the Snake River Range in Idaho, middle of nowhere. There's nobody out there but my Knowles course. It is coming up on the last day of the course. And typically what we do on the last full day is, you know, at this point, we're 10 days in. We've been skiing a ton. We've been teaching avalanche curriculum every single day. Our students are ready to lead a tour on their own because that's what they're going to be doing after Knowles. And so we have legit student-led tours where it's like, I'm going to go with you because I have to for risk management purposes, but I am not going to say anything helpful to you unless it's like a life or death situation and you're about to get everybody killed. Like, I'm not going to ask questions. I'm not going to give coaching. I'm not going to share my snow and avalanche observations with you. You're on your own. I'm going to shadow you. So, of course, we had a group of yams or young adult males who, you know, the testosterone's raging. They're pretty good skiers. There was three of them where their goal for the last day was, we want to do something big. Rah! <laughs> and so I was like, all right, cool. I'll take the yams out. I like to have big days in the mountains. And so these guys, you know, they looked at maps and satellite images, and basically they planned a pretty rad tour where we probably did about 10 miles. We went far from camp. They took turns navigating, breaking trail. Like there aren't existing skin tracks to follow. It's a legit big day of backcountry skiing. And I hadn't been to where we were going and neither had they. So we had this objective we had identified on the map and we got there to the top of it. And it was a Northeast facing avalanche path, you know, prime avalanche terrain, major terrain trap below. Like, yeah, it's likely terrain wise. It's in that 35 to 40 degree start zone. It's a sweet open run till you get to all the trees and like the gully. It's a major, it's a dangerous terrain feature. There's not really room for error here. So we're, you know, at the top of the slope, making all kinds of different assessments. And in my own mind, I am just getting psyched to ski this line because it's gorgeous, like 1400 feet, super open. We had excellent snow. And in my mind, having been tracking stability every day, um, that year was like one of the most stable Teton snowpacks we've ever had. So I'm like, woohoo, my last day in the Tetons before I go back to you know, Cascade Concrete in Seattle. I am stoked to ski this line. So the yams are making assessments, they're taking forever, and then they're just having this big debate where basically one of them wanted to ski it, one of them didn't, and the third was totally undecided. <laughs> and so they had this big debate, and then ultimately they decided not to ski it because of uncertainty. And my heart sank. <laughs> I mean, to the point where I was like, ready to call a timeout and be like, okay, guys, I appreciate it. You're doing the right thing. But like, we are skiing this, like my human factors were absolutely raging. <laughs> um, but I did the right thing. And I shut up. <laughs> and we didn't ski it, but we actually did ski a super fun treed line nearby that was much safer. <laughs> it was super fun. We ended up doing two big laps on that, getting our 1400 vert each time. You know, we ended up getting back to camp in the dark. They were exhausted. Um, but at that debrief, when we asked the question of, did you make the right decision or did you get away with it? 
they totally made the right decision. And to see these guys go from complete novices who had never been in the backcountry before to being able to stare a beautiful line like that in the face where I am like, yes, 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 let's do it. And then say no. And just to work through a difficult discussion in a peer group, uh, I was just super proud of that. It stands out as one of the best days of skiing I've ever had as an educator. And I think sometimes I get a little down on young males, especially (laughs) because, you know, they sometimes it gets frustrating of like, wow, they keep doing stupid things. But that course showed me that they can learn and they can make the right decision if we give them the right tools and environment for that. And, and still make some good turns, right? Get your yeah. Totally. Yeah. And we, we did, we had a ton of fun. It still stands out. It's just a really fun day of skiing. We had excellent snow. That's a great story. Thanks for sharing Alexis. I've got one other listener question. Uh, um, Josh Kling is wondering if if we'll ever see like uh, the Avalanche Search and Rescue field guide in an app or like a PDF version that people can have on their phone, anything like that in the works? Yeah, we have begun talking about that. We recognize that obviously having resources in an electronic format certainly helps people and it's more convenient. Um, I will say it's probably unlikely that it will ever be a PDF format. Um, I would be more inclined to go the app route. And it's just a matter of figuring out what you know, it's going to take to make that happen. Um, I've never been an author before. It's all entirely new to me. And there's definitely just a lot to learn of like, okay, how do we, you know, actually do this and make it happen? But it's on our radar, looking into it. And uh, we do hope to make that available at some point down the road. Right on. Well, I hope everybody will go out and, and pick up a copy of Avalanche Search and Rescue, a backcountry field guide. Uh, published by Beacon Guidebooks, and you can find this wherever you might find a book, right? Um, lots of Yeah, online. you can buy it online. Uh, you can buy it direct at beaconguidebooks.com. Um, it's being sold by some major outdoor retailers like REI, Neptune, Mountaineering, Bentgate, etc. Um, and then the final plug I'll add is that we are giving a bulk discount to organizations that want to buy 10 copies or more. So you can go to beaconguidebooks.com and then reach out through the website to get, I think it's about a 25% discount if you're ordering in bulk for your ski patrol or SAR team or outing club or whatever. Awesome. That's great to know. Well, Alexis, thanks so much for taking the time to chat today. Thanks for the great conversation and and your thoughts on a lot of different topics within our our community these days. So uh, appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to be here, and I hope you have a safe and fun winter. All right, you too. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode, everybody. Make sure to tune in again next Thursday, October 21st. We've got an episode coming to you hosted by Wesley Gregg. Um, Wes sits down with Marty Schaefer of Kapow Guiding and Blanket Glacier Chalet. Uh, Sure to be a great episode, so make sure to tune in there. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on whatever podcast platform you listen to it on, and tell a friend. certainly helps. You can follow us on the social media. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, and 
There you can keep up to date with the latest and greatest episodes, as well as interact with us, send us a message. And uh, we've been announcing our upcoming interviews and soliciting questions from you all via the Instagram stories, so make sure to look out for those upcoming. Music on today's episode was provided by Ketza. The tracks were Pride and Clap Back. And you can find more of Ketza's tracks on their website, ketza.uk. Our artwork was created by Mike T, you man T. Don't forget to renew your A3 membership if you're down here in the States. And if you're feeling a little bit extra generous, maybe you can consider a, an additional donation, which will be matched by a very generous anonymous donor uh, through the end of 2021 here. So um, make sure to head on over to AAA's website, AmericanAvalancheAssociation.org, and you can find out more there. And don't forget today, October 15th, 2021, is the last day to apply for a scholarship graciously provided by VEASAN Avalanche Control, VEASAN USA, and they are giving away two scholarships to professional avalanche courses for this upcoming season. So you can find a link to the application in the show notes. Make sure to do that today. Until next time, stay tuned. Stay safe and keep having fun out there. Cheers. Cheers.